Well, thank you very much for coming out to hear Nick Greer, and I hope, uh, unlike a later passage that we'll be studying in Luke, you'll not be saying away with this man when you've heard me speak. Um, but it's a real pleasure and privilege to bring God's Word, and especially one that I think is so clear about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the... Uh, the importance it is to listen to his words and, and really get it right. In, in June, I sat rocking back and forth uh, when I read the final evaluation and asked myself, how had I got this so wrong? I was so sure of myself, I had in-depth knowledge, and I put so much effort in, and yet I haven't even met the halfway mark. This was 30 years ago, and I had barely scraped a D, getting a mark in the low 40s in my first year RE exam at school. And it was quite a shock for a young 12-year-old to have my world rocked by reality. Because what has happened is, in our religious education exam, we were to write short essays on some of the parables of the Lord Jesus that we were studying. Except I wrote long essays that were filled with imagination and extra coloring, just to add a bit more spice to the story. So, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son, I outlined exactly how I thought the lost son spent his time in riotous living with parties, possessions, and prostitutes, and with several other parables did I do many such things. And my RE teacher was less than impressed. And I had done this out of the best of intentions. In fact, I blame my Sunday school teacher who also embellished the stories a little bit uh, to keep us 11 and 12 year old boys in check. And I thought by regurgitating all of this extra stuff that I would impress my RE teacher with my great knowledge, except it didn't. If I'd just stuck to what I actually knew of the text, things would have been different. But it was a really important lesson for me that anyone who knows about the words and actions and stories of the Lord Jesus, are we putting on our own thoughts and ideas and coloring to end up with something that we think will impress others or that makes it more palatable or interesting? Because if we do, like me at 12 years old, we can get it so wrong. So the passage today shows us about some people who thought they had got it right and added lots of things to it, but they were completely off beam. They were in a completely different world to that which the Lord Jesus was living in. And it had ultimately disastrous consequences. Let's read about this in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. And when the Lord Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where in entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks in the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks in the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known in this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden 
from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold signs them. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that praise is fitting for you, the Lord of heaven and earth. And we thank you, Father, that if we don't cry out, then even creation itself acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. We pray, Father, as we read your word, help us to know what true praise of you looks like in our lives. Help us, Father, not only to see the necessity of praising and worshiping you, but also the importance, Father, of getting it accurate, of treasuring the Lord Jesus for who he is in all of his person and in all of the things he wants to do for us as Christians and for this world. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus is on the very last part of his journey to Jerusalem. He has a few days left to live. It's a journey where he goes to suffer and be crucified, be strung up, kneeled to a, a wooden cross by the Romans. But it's a journey that's at the very center of God's plan to save and redeem people like you and me. This is directly relevant for us today. And there is a message of challenge to us all. Have we accepted this savior, this king into our lives? Christ's sufferings weren't, as our esteemed Bible teacher David Gooding explained, an obstacle to his mission of becoming king of the universe. It wasn't even a fortunate interlude that allows us to be saved and right with God, but it's the very basis on which God sets up his rule, his kingdom in our lives, no matter where you're from. And how the Lord Jesus approaches setting up that kingdom and some of the values of that kingdom, we're going to see today. Because we all, like my 12-year-old self, are prone to invent and embellish what we would like God's kingdom to be like, rather than living according to what it actually is. So let's observe this morning our Lord Jesus Christ approaching the capital religious city, Jerusalem, as we've read this scripture. I've often concentrated when thinking about the Lord's journey, about his suffering and his death on the cross, his death that bore the sins of men and women. But there's a little phrase that occurs several times in the Gospels that I've overlooked and its significance, and that is he would be rejected by the chief priests and rulers. You see, Christianity is not just, just historical facts, but it is no less than something that happened 2,000 years ago. Many historians of great repute who don't have any inkling or desire to be Christians firmly believe and say there is no doubt that Jesus Christ was crucified. But bare facts on their own are not what saves us. Because what saves us is our acknowledgement that in some way we have a personal decision to make about Christ. 
whenever it says that Jesus was there to be rejected by the chief priests and rulers, by the political religious authorities of that time, it's personal, isn't it? They're not just rejecting a philosophy or an idea, another religion. They have to make a decision about this man before them. And what they do is that they take Israel's true king and they turf him over to the Romans to do with as they see fit. And when we see Jesus coming in to Jerusalem, we see a way in which he exposes people's hearts and motivations wide open. Some of those motivations today, 2,000 years, may be part of your life, maybe part of my life. So the Lord has about two miles to go, and he decides to procure some traditional Palestinian transport. So he arrives in this very fertile area called the Mount of Olives, or Olivet, and he's at two towns, Bethphage and Bethany, that actually had no small significance. Bethphage means house of unripe figs. And ironically, this was one of the charges that the Lord Jesus lays to not only the religious leaders, but to the people themselves, that God expected them to bear fruit in keeping with who he was, turning their lives around, worshiping him in, showing what it meant to love God and your neighbor. But they didn't do that. And so like unripe figs, they were not yet ready for any good use. Even though the Lord had given them time and patience and nurturing, they didn't respond. Bethany's also important as a town that has particular emotional connection with the Lord. Today, it's a Palestinian town called Al-Azariah, the place of Lazarus. And this is the town where Lazarus, a very good friend of the Lord Jesus, died and where the Lord raised him from the dead. It's also the town at which Jesus wept loudly at the grave when he saw how death had brought everything counter to God's intention for men and women, for your life, for my life, no matter what background we're from. And we're gonna see in our passage today how the Lord Jesus also has a deeply wailing emotional response around this place to what is not natural, to people who reject their creator, who reject God's purposes for themselves. So a large chunk of this passage actually relates to this wee donkey that our Lord rides in. And it is a wee donkey. It's a colt. It's the young offspring of a mature mule um, on which the Lord Jesus is riding. Now, if you're interested, um, there's actually probably two donkeys. There's a wee donkey and there's a big donkey um, in Matthew. Uh, it's two donkeys that are brought, but the Lord rides on the younger, unridden, smaller offspring. Maybe likely its mother was brought along to calm the animal that hadn't been ridden on before and it was about to endure masses of noise and people throwing cloaks and dear knows what else and palm branches uh, with the Lord's arrival. Now, I think it's pretty obvious. I, I don't see lots of supernatural things happening here. Let's take the text, um, what it says. I think the Lord has probably made preparation and uh, for you know donkeys for hire and this rather unusual quest of make sure the donkey has its young colt. In fact, that is the most important so when the owners, not knowing who these disciples are, ask, well, why are you untying the colt? Do you not, you know, you know, why are you getting the tricycle whenever you can have the car for hire? And they go, no, the Lord has need of it. And they went, ah, yes, that was that very popular rabbi who had this unusual request, and they let him take it. Now, you can understand why the Lord would be circumspect, arranging things in advance, but not telling everybody the plans. He had to do the same with his Passover meal a few days later, where Peter and John are sent to um, get an upper room ready. 
because our Lord was going to be betrayed, these chief priests and rulers are plotting against him to destroy him because they can't accept what he is saying about them. I wonder these two unnamed disciples, when they, you know, they sense the anticipation of the crowds, the, the disciples are ready to launch into this praise service, and then the Lord sends them off to, to fetch a few donkeys. I, I kind of wonder, you know, the equivalent of the coffee run, did they think, ah, oh, we're missing out on all the excitement and drama and fun? Yet this little errand, done for the Lord in obedience to him, was of eternal significance in God's plan. And perhaps when Christ calls us to do things, no matter how small in our lives, often it has eternal importance. So what was this wee donkey all about? You know, why is there so much in this passage about it? Well, donkeys were ridden by kings in times of security and peace, not the king on a war horse going into battle. But whenever there had been victory, whenever the king was announcing terms of peace or was coming into his kingdom. If you were here last week, you'll remember about one of David's servants, Ziba, who brought donkeys for the king's household to ride on when David was coming back to his kingdom. David's son Solomon was given David's own personal mule to ride to announce him as being king. Interestingly, David, um, not a perfect man, a great man after God's heart, but he had a little bit of a problem with succession planning and managing his family. And there were others attempting to seize the kingship at this time. So David, by placing Solomon on a mule, and announcing his king is making here, this is God's true king. This is the person who will rule you. And so the Lord Jesus does exactly that. He rides on a donkey as Israel's true king. Would Israel accept? There's a prophecy in the Bible, in the book of Zechariah, a man who wrote to God's people who were also the, hunter, the heel of various world empires, the Babylonians and the Persians. And, and Zechariah writes a message to comfort God's people he calls them the daughter of Zion, and he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Luke shows us the Lord Jesus sitting on this young, inexperienced animal, coming in times of peace and victory. This is why the crowd shout, Hosanna, praise to God, blessed is the king. They probably remember, oh yes, this was the town in which this man raised from the dead. The healings, the miracles, the great teachings. And there's something I love here, very homegrown, very rustic and handmade about them, throwing their cloaks on as a saddle for the donkey and the red carpet on the way. These are ordinary people who see something of, oh yeah, this is Israel's king. This is personal to me. I'm going to make a commitment. It was pretty obvious, even the religious elite said, teacher, get control of this situation. Tell your disciples to stop this. And our Lord makes clear to them what was clear to many of the masses, but they were too blind to see that even if nobody praised him, even creation would still praise him. But yet you remain blinded in your sin, unwilling to acknowledge God's king has come. So our Lord Jesus is fulfilling these scriptural prophecies about the mode of his arrival but also about the character of that arrival. Because it's not that Christ is humble by riding on a donkey. That's just being hyper-religious, okay? Um, this was a kingly act. What Christ's humility was, was riding on the lesser animal. The animal that had never had somebody on it before. 
the risk that that could have been with the crowds and the noise. But yet, out of great sensitivity and love, Christ is showing us how he is arriving, not with pomp and circumstance, not to destroy people, not in a militaristic victory, but in things that offer peace for even the most humble of his creation. And can you imagine that little donkey feeling the body weight of our Lord, feeling his body heat on its back, feeling the Savior's hand, rubbing its face, maybe giving it a treat every so often, the Savior talking reassuringly to it. This was the same Jesus that wanted to talk reassuringly to God's people who were crushed under the Romans and crushed by all these religious people who were very self-serving and invented lots and lots of rules and regulations to try and fence God's people from doing something that might offend him in their eyes, but who often became self-serving. The Lord Jesus is coming with a clear mandate for peace when he comes to Jerusalem. But how did they all get it so spectacularly wrong? It's not just a low D they got on the report card. It was a complete failure, a complete failure to understand the first thing about who God was. Despite what was obvious in Christ's coming, there was something that was hidden from people, something hidden from the capital city. Things that if only this city had known would have made for peace. It would have staved off disaster at the time Christ comes and visits them. But, but what is it about this that, that is hidden? What did they not get? Well, whatever it was, it seems to have been hidden because of what Christ was actually saying himself. You see, the Lord had been teaching for three years in the open air, on mountains, in houses, in synagogues, the streets, and even in the temple. What Christ says is open, it's engaging, repeated in different ways. His stories use simple illustrations that could be memorized and passed on, which is why we have such an accurate account of the Lord Jesus' teaching today. Seen from different points of view, and maybe different stories told in different ways at different times by the Lord, but all with a very clear aim to get people to think, who is this man and what am I to do with him? And this is the rub, because you know we can know so much of Christ's words. We can know a lot about the history of religion, Jewish or Christian. Maybe we even think, actually, Christianity is pretty good. We sympathize with it. It seems to be a good moral system. It has some very interesting things to say about the human condition. And you can see how Christians have done so much good. We're looking at the disaster relief fund for Turkey. So many examples of that. But we can appreciate these things so much that we actually begin to move away from the core of Christianity, which is the person of the Lord Jesus. And like I did 30 years ago, and no doubt still do today, add fantasies and my own imaginations to these things, perhaps as a convenient way of avoiding the questions the Lord Jesus is asking, asking of people. Questions such as, who do you think I am? Am I an historical religious figure from 2,000 years ago? Or am I the son of God who is coming into your life, who will be your judge, but will be your savior if you'll let me? The people following Jesus knew their scriptures really well, far better than I think probably many of us done. Even the poorest of them knew a lot about God's Messiah, about God's reign and rule, and what it would be like. But it's really interesting that very few of the trained religious leaders, the scribes, knew that justice, mercy, love, were far greater than all religious 
sacrifices and acts of display. Many of them seem to be more there to celebrate their own faithfulness, piety and, and works uh, and social standing than actually concentrating on God. These Pharisees we read about who tell the Lord's disciples to be rebuked, um, they were the, the theologians of the day. They should have known better than anybody what God's arrival would look like, but they didn't because they were too interested in feathering their own nests. They used religious practices to oppress and exclude others, and in fact, they even got round giving money to their family by saying, well, actually, this is a gift. And so th they used all these shortcuts and circumvents to get around the obvious commands of the Lord to honor your father and mother. And they grumbled against the Lord. What an awful thing grumbling is, because he showed them the hypocrisy, and they tried to destroy him. You know, they were so exacting in their religious practices about what you could do on the Sabbath day, what you could eat, what you could, types of what you could not do, but yet they didn't see the complete contradiction of setting up a good idea in the temple, animals that you can buy, change money for sacrifice, so you can come from afar and you don't have to worry about getting an unblemished animal for sacrifice, it's there and available. But they turned that into something where they took a little, hived off a little bit of income tax, a little bit of uh, transactional tax, to feather their own nests. They didn't see the hypocrisy of this racket for themselves, and they completely lost that, you know, God's truth is not about creating an exclusive religious elite where it only attracts a certain person from an ethnic group or whatever. It's a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. But if the Lord Jesus hammered the religious leaders, rightly so, he also had a message for the ordinary uh, man or woman in the street, because it wasn't just the religious leaders that were grumbling. It was often the people who were surprised by what he did. Now, we get a lot of praise here. Um, the disciples, I believe, kind of started the praise and then, you know, rent a crowd, everybody else sort of joined in. But what has kind of gone before in this chapter? Well, what we have is the Lord Jesus passing through a town called Jericho, a town where a blind man was healed who saw Jesus in his blindness as the son of David and who also said, Hosanna. The Lord Jesus also rescued not so much the oppressed of this town, but the oppressor, a little man called Zacchaeus, who was the chief tax collector and swindler. And this kind of, Zacchaeus, I'm coming down to your house to have dinner tonight and we're going to have a really good talk. This annoyed the ordinary people who said, why is this man going to be the guest of a sinner? It's the same type of grumbling the religious leaders had done with Christ, who was eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. Because many of these who were his disciples, two miles from Jerusalem, a few days later, as Neville reminds us, were asking for his crucifixion. Of the thousands of people that were probably following the Lord at Pentecost, which we were remembering today from Acts 2 in our Breaking of Bread service, there was maybe only about 120 of the disciples that had made it through them. The rest had deserted them. Here, Christ is proclaimed as king, yet a few days later, the crowds proclaim a man called Barabbas as their leader, a murderous insurrectionist, because they had kind of lost the vision of what the true king of peace was about. When it was obvious Christ wasn't going to be coming bulldozing the Romans, they kind of lost interest. 
They moved on to something else, and the hymn we sing, My Song is Love Unknown, captures this fleeting allegiance of the organ crowd well. Sometimes they strew his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. If Christ's approach irked the leaders, his approach also irked the common people. When his ideas didn't match up with their ideas, and the reason it didn't match up is because many people had a completely deficient view of God's character. And this is the more subtle thing, this is the more subtle resistance that I think many of us can have to Christianity. The last parable Jesus told um, before this passage is in response to disciples said, Lord, is your kingdom going to come now? Or, you know, are, are we going to, is this going to be it? We're, we're all behind you here. And Jesus said, no. And he told them a story about a noble man who was going away in a far country to receive a kingdom, but he left his servants in charge of the town with some resources to trade and to invest and to make money, to be his representative, do something useful. And this noble man was leaving a town where there was people who said, actually, we don't want this man to rule over us. And they send a delegation and said, you know, we don't want this. Nevertheless, the noble man receives his kingdom and he returns. He finds that two of the servants have invested his money and made many times over. He calls them blessed, you were faithful. Not only were they doing useful things in this intervening time between his first arrival as a nobleman and his second arrival as king, they had not been ashamed to bear his name, no matter what the cost may be and the danger associated with that. But there's a third servant who says, look, I kind of hid your money away because I know you're a really hard person and you're, you know, sort of reaping where you didn't sow things and I was scared and so I hid your money away. And the Lord himself says, you're a wicked servant. If you'd even been consistent with your view of my character, would you not even just put it in the bank so the money would have gained some interest? This man brings judgment on himself by his own words and actions. Not only did he give the nobleman, who's a picture of the Lord Jesus, a kind of rather sinister view to his character. He's not even acting consistently with that. You would have at least thought, okay, well, if my view of God is hard, well, then I better do something about that. No, he's a lazy and a wicked servant. And I wonder, did many of these ordinary people see Jesus through a particular lens? A lens where instead of getting on with the job that they've been entrusted to, to worship the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they actually saw Jesus coming as a political difference, uh, a deliverance, maybe a bit of a bash in the nose for those religious snobs in the big smoke. And I believe what the Lord Jesus was doing here was he was touching on something much more subtle that was motivating these crowds, a desire for an earthly kingdom, a national pride, a desire to get revenge and even with those who had hurt them. For God and Israel was their rallying cry, power and revenge their motivation, and so that's how they viewed the Lord Jesus Christ, a powerful speaker and miracle worker, but not as the king of heaven that required them to change their hearts. They looked upon the Lord as being a severe man, I'm sure, like the disciples James and John at once. If they want to call fire down from heaven on people that oppose them. But yet they had to understand the character of the Lord coming humbly and peace, not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. 
You see, when we don't value the character of God, we subtly but disastrously misshape his truth to suit us. Christ is so tender. He rides tenderly in this little donkey, but he shows great tenderness when he's dealing with people. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He's weeping at the fact that judgment will come because they have rejected him. He hasn't forced them to reject him. He has done all he, has, all he possibly could to show them a better way, to show them what God is like, to do many great things, but yet they rejected it for themselves. And how often when Christ and his message comes to us, do we reject it for many lesser things? Some people have issues that they're concerned about their identity, their sexuality, and everything they know about Christ and the scriptures is just thrown away whenever they can't see how this could be fitting in with God's kingdom. Other people have had a disastrous relationship, a difficult diagnosis, or they've just been marred in bitterness, and they can't seem to get over these things. And ultimately, Christ is not enough for them because it's something else that they put at the center of their lives driving them. Others might think that, well, actually, you know, I kind of enjoy Christianity and I enjoy coming to church, but I'll put things off until a more convenient time, you know. I can enjoy religion for its cultural benefits and for the morality, but, you know, all this enthusiastic religious stuff I don't need. It's heartbreaking to think that the Lord Jesus was weeping over attitudes such as that, attitudes which really keep people out of God's kingdom, attitudes marred and sin and self-centeredness, attitudes that I have that I see so prevalent in my own life, and that I need to ask the Lord, Lord, would you help me to deal with these and to value what is most precious in this life? Maybe, you know, you're happy to coast along the peripheries in church, and look, it's fantastic to see you all wherever you've come from. And maybe you're, you even think you might be a follower of the Lord Jesus, but just ask yourself, what is really motivating your heart in coming to Christ? Is it something other than, I have sinned? I have offended a holy God. This God is loving and kind and gracious. He has power and authority. But out of love, he chooses to give me, he's chosen to give me Christ, an opportunity to accept him, to confess those sins and to come to him. To have the judgment that I should bear dealt with at the cross. Not when Christ does come again, not on a donkey, but on a mighty white war horse, as the book of Revelation describes, to finally wrap up God's judgment on sin. If you keep God at arm's length, you'll find that for eternity, he will be very far away from you, and you will bear your own judgment, and that is a horrible thing. Because Christ describes in this passage what happened to the city of Jerusalem, and they were given 40 years to understand who Christ was, to see the church, to see, is Christ our Messiah? And the nation as a whole did not do that. There were only a few people that we can see, um, some of the leading Pharisees and Sadducees that, that seemed to have repented and become Christians. But as a whole, they did not. And they were constantly opposing the Christians. This is not an anti-Semitic thing, far from it, because if you or I were there, I believe as a whole, we would also have rejected the Lord. 
And so he says that the Romans are going to come and they will besiege you. And they will hem you on every side. You didn't want me as king. You said, we have no king but Caesar. Therefore, I'm giving you Caesar to rule over you. And you can see what hard kingly authority looks like. Because they will come and they will crush you. There will be no food in the city and you'll have to consume your own children. And they will tear down everything you held precious and valuable. And even this temple in which I am teaching and which I want to purify will be ripped down stone by stone because they wanted to melt down the gold and precious uh, stones and materials that were there. This is an earthly picture that did happen, but it's also the picture of a far greater judgment for those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ knowingly, willingly, and persistently, is that they will stand before him, and he, in a way, will say, you didn't want me. I gave you over to your own judgment to serve those idols in your life, to serve that relationship, to serve that fleeting admiration, to serve that sexual desire, to serve that love for possessions and money. And what are you like with it now? You're being ripped apart and torn down by your own desires, your own selfishness, and your own sin. That is a horrible judgment to endure. And the Bible has some very, very strong pictures about that. But it does not need to be like that. It does not need to be your experience. Because whether or not you want to, the Lord Jesus is he's going to come into your life at some stage as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Do you want him coming to you on a wee donkey, offering terms of peace, the savior of the world, out of great tender love, wanting to make you the person he originally created you to be? Or do you want Christ to come back in his glory on the mighty war horse when you'll have to give an account of the way you have lived and what you have done with the words of the Bible, with maybe what is not imperfect in my sermon, with the relationships you've seen in the church? Because no catechism or christening or community will save you. No mere religious works will save you. No mere intellectual understanding, but a trusting and faith on Christ. Don't let Christ be hidden from you today. Don't let it pass by through outright rejecting it as the Pharisees did. Selfishly appropriating bits of it for your own needs, your own psychological security, or your own moral understanding or even an enthusiastic misunderstanding of, oh, I'm going to become a Christian because it will sort this out in my life. Instead, see in this mighty King Jesus a gentleness and humility in dying for his enemies, to die for such as you and me, a king who gave himself in loving service even to death so that we could gain a true peace and knowledge of God.